Compassion is not the same as empathy. Empathy sees the problems of others, but it doesn't meet them. In fact, sinful empathy, refusing to remain tied to truth, can seek to meet the problems of others simply by seeing the need and sulking in it. But compassion, true biblical compassion, sees a need with understanding and seeks to meet the need with action. Shallow pity short circuits before action. But careless empathy detaches from fact at the price of feeling. Don't believe me? Consider the words of one best-selling researcher and storyteller. Quote, Empathy is connecting to the emotions that underpin an experience. In order to empathize with someone's experience, you must be willing to believe them as they see it and not how you imagine their experience to be. Now, the Internet says a lot of times and in a lot of places that Brene Brown said that, those words, both quotes. I couldn't find in my sermon research the original source of the quote. But as if to prove the point about the potential danger of empathy, I asked ChatGPT, which said, quote, if you believe that Brene Brown said this quote, then it's quite likely that she did. <laughs> See, empathy only feels toward the problem, and it risks losing itself entirely in it. But compassion does something about it. Godly compassion is directed toward the true or tangible good of people, which rebounds to the glory of God. In our passage from God's Word this morning in Mark chapter 6, we'll see the compassionate character of Christ. He alone can shepherd his people because he moves to meet their needs. So listen to God's Word as I read in Mark chapter 6, verses 30 to 44. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now, many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. And he had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. 
And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. What I want to argue from this passage is this. Jesus is the shepherd we need. Jesus is the shepherd we need. We're going to try to see and savor our shepherd from this text in two sections. First, in verses 30 to 34, Jesus sees our need. Second, in verses 35 to 44, Jesus meets our need. First, Jesus sees our need. Second, Jesus meets our need. Because Jesus is the true shepherd for the sheep. He's compassionate enough to see our need, and he's satisfying enough to meet our need. The compassion of Christ causes him to teach us and to feed us. And he does this especially for those who are weak and wounded sheep who admit they have no other shepherd. Let's get into the text. In verse 30, Mark calls the disciples of Jesus apostles. That means they were sent out by him to carry his message to the surrounding peoples. Now they've come back to report to Jesus about all that they did and taught. They preached repentance, they cast out demons, and they healed the sick. They've repeated the word and works of Jesus, their teacher. Then in verse 31, Jesus tells them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. That desolate place just means a place without people. The word in the underlying language calls our attention back to the Old Testament. Remember when the Israelites under Moses, especially in their grumbling, were wandering through the wilderness? We read one of those passages in our scripture reading this morning from Exodus 16. They do it again for 40 years in the book of Numbers. I think Mark wants us to connect this desolate place with that wilderness wandering. Just like God fed Israel with manna, now Jesus is about to feed his sheep with bread. First, though, in Mark 6, Jesus wants his disciples to rest after their mission. In a desolate place, he wants them to get silence and solitude for the sake of rest. Christian mission can be quite tiring. Sometimes it's even exhausting. I mean, especially when your mission field is hostile to you. Like in our church, we have some people with a mission field that's hostile to them. Anybody with young kids knows that sometimes your primary mission field is perplexingly hostile to you. But we should remember Jesus in the midst of our mission. We should take a moment to rest like he tells us to. He sees our need and he's able to meet our need. Jesus can give us rest. 
He says to me, he says to you, to me, to all of us, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Even when we're exhausted, we can turn to Jesus in prayer, and he promises to us to meet us right there where we are. The rest of Christ is for all of us, but I wonder, brothers and sisters, if Jesus told you you need to rest, would you listen to him? Is it something that he would tell you at this moment in your life? You need to rest. And would you listen? I confess my own temptation is towards what we call workaholism. My temptation is to think that productivity is always the plan of God. But sometimes the kingdom of God is very inefficient, at least by our standards. It doesn't seem like a lot is happening, and it certainly doesn't seem like a lot is happening very fast. That's because it takes faith to see what God is doing. You can't see it with your two eyes. So don't get me wrong, God is always perfectly accomplishing his purposes at every moment, at every point. We just sometimes have different priorities, don't we? I think one of the first things we need to see in Mark 6 is not only that Jesus gives rest, but also that that rest is primarily with him. They go away by themselves. This is the first principle of discipleship to Christ. We're not just on mission for Jesus, but with Jesus. If you want to do anything for Jesus, you're going to need to spend time with Jesus. You can't do anything for Jesus if you don't first spend time with Jesus. Don't get your priorities out of whack. Fellowship with Christ in his word and by prayer is more important than tackling your to-do list today. Rest with Jesus always takes priority over work for Jesus. This text is a good reminder, I think, to each of us to start our day in God's word, regardless of how busy you are. Look back at the text, now in verse 33, it says, Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. We thought last week about how everyone is hearing about Jesus. Verse 33 here is the fruit of the disciples' mission. People are coming from all over because they recognize these men in order to see their miraculous teacher. But notice how he sees them. It says it in verse 34. When he went to shore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus sees their need. This large crowd has no one to care for them, no one to lead them. They're like an army without a captain, or a basketball team without a coach, or a bunch of little children without a mother. The word for compassion here, it has to do with the innermost parts of the human body, like your bowels or your gut. It conveys great affection for someone. 
It's like an overwhelming feeling of concern for others that erupts from inside the deepest part of you. And aside from people in parables, the only one who has compassion like this in the Bible is Jesus. Jesus sees their need. And Mark tells us what this need is. He says they're like sheep without a shepherd. The phrase is an uncommon one in the New Testament, but it's all over the place in the Old. It's an allusion to Old Testament Israel and their consistent lack of spiritual leadership. Remember the connection between the desolate place and the wilderness wandering? We'll consider some more Old Testament context, this time from Numbers 27. Right before the Lord instructs Moses to have Joshua as his successor, Moses says to the Lord, listen, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. Numbers 27, 16, and 17. For God's people, there's to be a human leader who guides them and guards them. First, it was Moses, then it would be Joshua. But as the Old Testament goes on, we find that Israel's shepherds were unfaithful continually. The prophet Ezekiel later prophesies about this problem. Hear the word of the Lord to Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 34, verses 2 to 6. Listen. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness, You have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered all over the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Ezekiel 34, 2 through 6. The shepherds of Israel aren't actually shepherding anyone. They aren't guarding and guiding the people to know and follow the Lord. But only three chapters later, right after the famous Valley of Dry Bones, Ezekiel prophesies, My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. Ezekiel 37, verse 24. Though Israel 
failed to reflect the character of the Lord who called them, in part due to their false shepherds. Ezekiel's prophecy tells us that David will come again and be the one shepherd that God's people truly need. In Mark 6, Jesus is showing us that he is the true Moses who feeds the people, and he is the true David who leads the people. Jesus is the good shepherd who teaches, leads, and feeds the true Israel. Everyone who has faith in him. If you haven't already, you need to notice too how he shepherds them. They need a shepherd, so he teaches them. He teaches them. Though he's tired and wants to rest, he teaches them. He feeds them on doctrine. Doctrine is the Bible's word for teaching. Hungry souls need doctrine. So don't let anybody tell you, enough of all that theology, give me something practical. It's backwards. Theology is practical. At least theology that accords with Scripture is. It's what we grow on in Christ. Jesus himself nourishes us with his word so that we can grow. A Christian who doesn't love theology or doctrine is a contradiction in terms. A Christian without good doctrine is no Christian at all. So if we're to feed on doctrine, to be spiritually nourished by Christ, do you devote as much effort to your biblical knowledge and growth as you do to the rest of your life? No doubt, some of us here are experts at medicine or engineering or law or parenting or culture. And all those things are good in proper place. But do you give as much or more energy to your discipleship to Christ and to good theology that will help you grow up in Him? We need to steward our focus and attention and energy for Christ. Now maybe all of this sounds foreign or unfamiliar to you. Well, if you're new to following Jesus, my encouragement to you would be to join a good church and sit under good preaching for a long time. Maybe years. That's the main way all of us should take in good theology. Don't think that you need to go read all the theology books everyone's talking about right now. They change. Read your Bible every day, as much as you can. Join a healthy church. Sit under good preaching. That's how you start. The shepherds of the new covenant that the prophets promise under Christ the one shepherd are pastors who are biblically qualified men and their job is to feed the flock of Christ on good doctrine through preaching and teaching that's how Jesus shows his compassion for his sheep today by giving them the gift of elders who feed his sheep on his word remember what he says to Peter at the end of the gospel of John 
Peter, do you love me? You know I love you, Lord. Feed my lambs. Can I just take a minute to just tell you how thankful I am for Ben Lacey? He's not going to like that I'm telling you this, but in God's kind providence, it's true that he loves the Lord and he's good at dividing his word, at feeding us with it. Man, my soul feels safe with him. If you want to grow in Christ, find yourself a good pastor and present yourself to be pastored by him. See, Jesus sees our need, and in compassion, he moves to meet our need by giving us good doctrine, by putting us in healthy churches, by giving us faithful elders. Jesus is the shepherd we need. He cares for us in good times, in hard times, and for all time. I realize not everyone here may know Jesus. Maybe you're here and you're not following him yet. Maybe you're wondering, needs? I don't have a whole lot of those. I mean, I've talked to people where I've asked them, how can I pray for you? And they say, I think I'm okay right now. Maybe you can relate. If you can't see your need, you need Jesus to show you your need. That's the way he makes himself helpful to you. The first thing he does is he shows you that you have need. Do you know why we live in a world with sheep without shepherds? Do you know why passages like Mark 6 exist, where people don't have someone to care for them and lead them? It's because of what the Bible calls sin. Sin is any time that we don't do what God says, or that we do what God says not to do. Sin separates us from the one who made us. He's good, and he loves us, and he has a plan for us, which is following his word. But we've all put off his plan, and we've chosen sin instead. Pretending like we can be our own masters, our own gods, our own rulers. Sin is the reason that it feels like nothing in your life satisfies you. Jesus is the only one who can satisfy. When you look to something other than Jesus for something only Jesus can give you, you end up empty. I've done it. Many of us here would testify, we've done it. For all of us, our greatest need is to be forgiven of our sins and wickednesses, our disobedience to God. The only way we can do that is if somebody else lives a perfect life, pays the penalty we deserve in death, and rises from the grave to show everybody it's all true. And that's what Jesus did. Why is Jesus the shepherd we need? Because he lived a perfect life. He died the death that I deserve and that you deserve for your sin. And he rose from the dead, offering forgiveness of sins to anyone who will put their hope and trust in him. So if you haven't done that, I would encourage you, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to do it today. I don't want you to spend eternity in hell. Jesus sees our need and he meets our need. He's the shepherd who we need. Let's consider that second point now. Jesus meets our need. Just as he teaches us with compassion, so also he feeds us with satisfaction. He guides us, he guards us, and he gives us all that we need. Let's first look at the disciples' need in verses 35 to 38. Listen to that section again as I read. 
And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. The late hour in verse 35 usually indicates dinner time in ancient Jewish society. But they're in the wilderness where there's no food. No food to buy, not enough food to eat. So the disciples implore Jesus to send the people away for dinner. It's a good reminder to us that none of us knows better than Jesus. Jesus doesn't need them to tell him that it's dinner time. He knows. And as a good shepherd, he also knows he's been feeding the people with something more important than food all afternoon. Something they can't get anywhere else. No doubt, he's going to meet their physical need for food. But first, notice Jesus' surprising response to the disciples in verse 37. He says, you give them something to eat. Why say this? Jesus knows they don't have enough food. But the disciples still don't seem to know that Jesus can feed them. As the maker of them all, he can make a meal from nothing. So why go to town to buy food when Jesus is standing right here in front of you? The disciples just don't realize who he is yet. It's going to take a miracle for that. And so the comment, you feed them, is setting the stage for that miracle. See, you won't receive Jesus' help until you realize you need it. He's exposing their need to see him. We've seen throughout the recent chapters of Mark's gospel that Jesus has this unique authority And he's been demonstrating it with his teaching and his storm-stopping, demon-defying, disease-destroying, death-denying miracles. Then he gives them his authority for their mission. But when they come back, they find a clear reminder that his authority is greater, even than what he gave them to do. They might be able to preach and to heal, but they can't feed this hungry crowd. They can't stop a raging storm. Only Jesus can do that sort of thing. They might have some of his power, but they're not him. I think Jesus tells them to feed the crowd because he wants them to see that what is impossible for them is possible for him. Because all things are possible with God. You realize what this means, don't you? The Lord Jesus is going to give you more than you can handle. That's what he's doing in Mark 6. The disciples can't feed all these people. They don't have the food. They can't make the food. They can't even buy this kind of food. I mean, 200 denarii is like six months of paychecks. They don't have that kind of power. And he's graciously showing it to them. 
to meet their need, he'll have to show it to them first. And that's him being kind, brothers and sisters. You want Jesus to give you more than you can handle. Because that's how you get more of him. It's not painless. It's not pleasant. But if you want more of Jesus, you need more than you can handle. Just listen to Paul's words to the Corinthians. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul would later go on in the same letter to outline some of his sufferings for Christ. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul tells us he's been whipped, beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, adrift at sea, in danger from robbers, in danger from Jews, in danger from false teachers, in danger from fake Christians, and a lot more. And he concludes, who is weak and I am not weak? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Why boast of your weaknesses? Because then Jesus can be your strength. Jesus sees our need and he meets our need. Jesus is the shepherd that we need. So let's see how Jesus meets their need in verses 39 to 44. Listen again as I read. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish, and those who ate the loaves were five thousand in number. Here we see Jesus is ready to meet them in their moment of need. They don't have enough food for almost anyone, but then Jesus steps up to serve everyone. As God, he's able to make a meal from scraps big enough to feed a multitude. Saints, God promises us sufficient grace only when we need it, not before. You and I need to trust God for today, this moment right now that we're in the midst of. He's not going to give us grace for tomorrow until tomorrow. When we forget this truth, we get anxious and fearful of all that could happen or might happen or will happen. But just like in the text, Jesus sees our need and Jesus meets our need. You have to have faith to truly behold him. Sight is not sufficient to see the spectacle of this crowd suddenly being satisfied. He's got ready-made grace. He steps up to give it when you need it, not before. There's something else significant about this crowd, too. I think Mark puts them in deliberate contrast with Herod's birthday party back in verses 21 to 29. We looked at it last week. 
The words in groups in front of you in your ESV in verse 39, in the underlying language, it's where our word symposium comes from. A symposium is like a conference or a meeting or a convention of people coming together for a common purpose. Mark here gives us two contrasting symposium banquets convened by two starkly different figures, Herod and Jesus. The differences might be numberless, but can I show you a few of them? Herod invites only the famous and wealthy and important. Jesus shows no such partiality. Herod is able to feed you physically, but he'll starve you spiritually. Jesus can feed people both physically and spiritually until they're totally satisfied. Herod is governed by the opinions of others. Jesus is concerned for the cares of others. Herod needs people to love him and make him feel great. Jesus ministers to others as though they are more significant than him. Herod is characterized by fear of man, false guilt, lies, and murder. Jesus is the epitome of righteousness and justice and equality. With Herod, only a few are welcomed. With Jesus, everyone who wants to eat and be satisfied can come. And as everyone's eating here, Mark repeatedly points out that it was all of them, all without exception or distinction. You can see that in verses 39, 41, 42, and 44. This kind of equality is in some sense out of place in ancient Judaism because table fellowship, who you eat with, is most regulated by the law. More than any other aspect of life. But at Jesus' banquets, anyone who knows him can come and enjoy him and his benefits. Brothers and sisters, there is no partiality in the kingdom of Christ. And just as there's none in the kingdom, there should be none in this church. Let there be no partiality among us here at TRBC. May we be a place where all who know Christ can come and be satisfied in him. Since your identity doesn't help you or hinder you in Christ, it should not help you or hinder you in this church. Notice too what happens after everyone eats. In verse 43 it says, And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. From five loaves and two fish, through five thousand people, more than five thousand, to twelve baskets of leftovers. Don't get distracted by all the numbers. The point is the power. The numbers aren't some code to crack. Rather, they emphasize the magnitude of the miracle. Only Jesus could feed 5,000 men with five measly fish. And of course, Jesus would have more than enough for everybody. Jesus meets their need with more than enough for them. See, Jesus has more than you need. He has an infinite, bountiful plentitude of good gifts to bless his people. He gives them all, all that they need, and he's not left with a little in return. Listen to me, church. We need to get this. The kingdom of God is not a zero-sum game. It's not like an economic market or some math equation. 
God does not take blessings from you to give them to somebody else. That's not how it works. Lest you think that God is stingy or grumpy or unfair, God can just create new blessings. And he's always got enough for everyone. And he's always being kind and merciful and generous to all of us, giving us all everything that we need. Our problem is simply that we don't understand our needs rightly. We don't understand what we need most in any given moment. We should trust that God does. Hard as it may be to see with your eyes, trust God in faith that he's doing good to you, giving you all that you need for life and godliness, keeping you by his power until one day he takes all of his people home to a land where there will no, be no hungry people, no hungry souls, no sheep without a shepherd. As we look to that day, we need to see one final aspect of this meal in which it points us forward to an even greater one. It's in verse 41. Mark says, Jesus took, blessed, broke, and gave the food. Those four verbs, take, bless, break, and give, they're significant in Mark's gospel. Exactly these words in exactly this order will show up again at Jesus' last supper. In Mark chapter 14, verse 22, Jesus takes bread, blesses it, breaks it, and gives it to his disciples. It's his last fellowship meal with them. This meal points us to that meal, the last supper, which shows us the true significance of the shepherd we need. We need him to feed us, yes. We need him to teach us, yes. But more than that, we need his body broken and his blood shed for us. The shepherd we need must live a perfect life, die a sacrificial death, and rise triumphantly from the grave if we want to be a part of the flock of God. Jesus sees our need and he meets our need, especially in his life, death, and resurrection, which by faith becomes our salvation from sin. That's why Jesus gave us the Lord's Supper in the meantime. That's why we observe it here every other week, to remember, celebrate, and proclaim his death until he comes again. Because Jesus is the shepherd we need. He sees our need with compassion, and he meets our need with satisfaction. That's what compassion does, biblically considered. Compassion means using your power for people's good, which is to glorify God. The compassion of Christ is much deeper than a mere emotional connection. He's the true shepherd for the sheep. He sees our need, and he meets our need. Let's pray and ask for his help now. Our Father, we trust that you know our needs better than we do, that you know the needs of everyone in this room, that most of all, each of us needs to be forgiven of our sins, and so we thank you for sending Jesus for sinners like us. We pray that we would gladly receive his care for us, his leadership over us, his love for us in every day, 
in every moment. Help us to follow our good shepherd. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.